Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, we're going to be having a chat about the 1930 FIFA World Cup, the very first one, the one that started it all. And you might be wondering, well, why? What reason might you have, Riley, for talking about the 1930 FIFA World Cup? Uh, well, you know, just as with episode 161 on the Ancient Olympic Games, the timing of this episode, purely coincidental. Episode 161 just so happened to come out in the middle of the Tokyo Olympics. What are the chances? And now this one comes out when the World Cup is on? Imagine... That No, look, in all seriousness, well, no, actually, not in all seriousness, in no seriousness, we absolutely have to get across this World Cup, the original and the best, because of just how ridiculous the whole thing was. We have got some classic half-assed history coming your way this week. I know the show has become a bit more serious, a bit more highbrow in recent times. I'm working to undo that. We are back, baby. Some of the most ridiculous stories that history can offer us, and one of them is the story of the 1930 World Cup. Remember... Remember episode 48 on the on the 1904 Olympic marathon with people driving half the circuit in a car, being chased by dogs, getting sick and having naps on the side of the road? Remember episode 182, the 1908 New York to Paris race, where people tried to do things like load their race cars onto trains or just sell them en route? We've got another episode just like this, cut from the same cloth, filled with absurd tales from the early days of organized sports, and I am confident that you are going to very much enjoy this one. And why am I so confident? Well, obviously, the World Cup, global spectacle, billions of people caught up in the magic of soccer, glued to their TVs as all the drama plays out, putting aside differences, petty things like, you know, differences of opinion we have on human rights abuses. It's so nice to see the world come together like this. But the 1930 World Cup, the first one, it was a spectacle for a different reason. I mean... Buckle up, because here is a quick list of some of the stuff that happened during this event. We've got kings picking the teams rather than, you know, coaches and managers. We've got people dressing in other nations' uniforms to play games. We've got referees running around in suits and ties. We've got players getting their legs broken and their teeth knocked out and still playing on. We've got team officials chloroforming themselves mid-match, even if you're not a soccer fan, and I'm not really, I pay attention long enough to see Australia get knocked out every four years and then go back to not caring about the sport at all. Even if you're not a soccer fan, you will still enjoy getting across all the nonsense that came from this tournament. And I want to offer a huge thank you to alert listener Z, who's listening over in Nigeria. Uh, Z suggested I have a look at the history of the World Cup and this one in particular, absolutely incredible story. So thanks, Z, for the suggestion. Good on you, mate. Strap yourselves in. It is going to be a very bloody bumpy ride. I can't wait to get to it. So let's get stuck in here and get across the story of the 1930 FIFA World Cup, the very first one that was ever held. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to, well, obviously, yeah, I mean, 1930 for very obvious reasons. The 1930 FIFA World Cup, uh, who would, well, actually, I was going to say who would have guessed, but then again, when, you know, a Tin Pot History podcast that you download through an, I don't know, exploding neural implant chip 100 years from now, when they cover the... 2020 Tokyo Olympic Games, they will be going all the way back to 2021, not 2020, won't they? So I guess it's worth pointing out. Anyway, 1930, you're the first ever uh, FIFA World Cup, although we could go back a little bit further if you'd like. We can get across the story of how the World Cup even came to be. Uh, if you want a more in-depth look at the history of soccer more generally outside of FIFA, outside the World Cup, um, as well as 
the history of other codes of football. Episode 135, history of football, get across it, bring you up to speed in that regard. But when it comes to FIFA, the organization specifically responsible for soccer, it dates back to 1904. It uh, it wasn't the first governing body for soccer. That was the Football Association, which is still around today. It's in charge of soccer in England. But back 100 years or so ago, uh, when there was talk of establishing an international governing body for the nascent sport of soccer, uh, the English and their Football Association were not happy about this. They were like, no, no, thanks. We're not having any part of this. And so instead, France, Belgium, the Netherlands, Spain, Denmark, Sweden, and Switzerland they all got together. They started their own governing body on the 21st of May, 1904. Um, and the really funny thing about the the origin story of FIFA is that Germany also agreed to join as well. They sent a telegram later in the day saying that they, they were in, they were going to join FIFA. Uh, and despite Julie joining up on the same day that FIFA was founded, they're not considered founding members because they were late with their telegram. Like, the same day, a few hours later, but nope, doesn't matter. Sorry, Germany. I, I love that. FIFA, founded 21st of May 1904. Here are our founding members. Uh, Germany was the first to join as well as a non-founding member. Joined on the 21st of May 1904, the day that it was founded, but not a founding member. Nope, they were late to the meeting. Anyway, after nearly collapsing after the First World War, FIFA then grew to be the preeminent governing body when it, came, when, it came, when it came to soccer, constantly in conflict with the Football Association in the United Kingdom. Um, but FIFA staged Olympic matches in 1924, 1928 in front of in front of tens of thousands of people. Soccer really was on the up and up. Um, and because of the successes of these Olympic matches, FIFA president uh, Jules Rimet, who, to the best of my knowledge, uh, never gave a press conference saying that he felt like a disabled gay African female migrant worker, um, that proud FIFA presidential transition obviously wasn't established that far back, um, Jules Rimet, he began to, cl- to plan this grand international tournament separate from the Olympics for soccer. Um, and this was despite the objections of Pierre de Coubertin, the, the founder of the modern Olympic Games. It was also uh, despite the objections of most of the national soccer associations that governed their respective countries. And you might think, well, why wouldn't they be on board with something like this? But no, they didn't want to lose all their best players for months and months on end to enter a huge international tournament when, you know, these players had domestic games to play. And in all honesty, this issue persists through to this very day. There are soccer clubs around the world that are very restrictive when it comes to non-club tournaments that their players are allowed to play. Um, It's worth noting as well at this point um, that while there were soccer clubs and while they did make money off the games that they staged with their players, virtually all the players back at this time, they're amateurs and I don't mean that in the sense that they were bad at the game but in the sense that it wasn't the way that most of them made their full-time living they weren't professional soccer players uh today obviously being a top level soccer player makes you it earns you squillions and squillions but back then you could be the best player on the best international team and then once the match was over you would go back to your job as a, a, a plumber or whatever to you know make sure you, you could pay your bills anyway Rime. He works on these plans to stage this big international soccer tournament, the World Cup. Um, And as I say, he does this while fighting through a fair bloody bit of resistance. Uh, First of all, he needs a location for the tournament to be held. There are a couple of different nations that put in bids and and tenders and then ultimately, one after the other, they withdraw. And uh, Rime ultimately settles on Uruguay of all places. And you might be a little bit surprised to hear that he settled on this, uh, you know, very small South American country. 
Uh, but there are very good reasons as to why he did, and we can we can get across them now. Number one, and perhaps the reason that sort of gave the decision the most public credibility was the fact that Uruguay had won the soccer gold in not just the 1928 Olympics, the most recent ones, but also the ones before that in 1924. So they were the reigning champions, years and years running. Uh, so fair enough, they should get to host the tournament. They're, you know, ostensibly the, the best club in the world or the best team in the world. Um, number two, another pretty good reason, Uruguay would be celebrating the 100th anniversary of its constitution, which was adopted back in 1830. So again, fair enough reason. All of Uruguay would be celebrating, be a great big party, chuck a big tournament there as part of it. People love that. And then reason number three, and this will show you that nothing has really changed with FIFA over the years, and at the end of the day, it is just money that makes the world go around. Number one, number two, all well and good, but number three was that Uruguay agreed to pay for all of the travel and all of the accommodation of all of the players and all of the staff. And as the weeks-long journey across the Atlantic uh, by ship stood in the way of all the teams coming from places like Europe, this was a very big factor in Uruguay getting chosen, the fact that they were going to foot the bill. So Rime settled on Uruguay, and, and so he had his location, but now he needed teams. And obviously these days when it comes to, uh, comes to qualifying for the World Cup, there is grueling competition in order to even just qualify for the, for the event itself. There are Fierce qualification matches held around the world in the years leading up to the event. It's quite a long process. But back then, when it came to the 1930 World Cup, you were able to qualify by just saying you would like to go. All you needed to do is tell FIFA, oh, yes, we'll come, please. And that was that. You would just qualify by just putting your hand up and saying, yep, we'll be there. But despite this very generous and open invitation policy, and despite the fact that FIFA invited every single one of its members to come and play in Uruguay, a grand total of eight nations accepted this invitation in addition to the hosts, Uruguay. Uh, These nations were, in my favourite order, no particular, uh, Peru, Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, the United States, Chile, Bolivia, and Paraguay. Now, the geographically-minded listener may have already realised what's going on here. All of these nations are located in the Americas. Uh, I mean, for some of them, Argentina and Brazil, they're just visiting the next-door neighbour when they go to Uruguay. For uh, others, like, uh, like Peru and Bolivia and Paraguay, just heading down the street. But no nations from outside the Americas seem particularly interested in making the long trip all the way to South America, all the way to Uruguay. Um, I mean, remember, this is before widespread commercial air travel. Amelia Earhart hasn't even flown across the Atlantic yet, episode 218, get across it. Um, so Remy, realising that this World Cup is, you know, going to end up being more like the, you know, All-America's Cup, he starts dashing about trying to drum up support, trying to persuade other FIFA members to actually take part as well. And as I mentioned before, the most severe resistance that he faced came from the national governing bodies of all these respective nations, particularly in Europe, where the economy was in the toilet. There just wasn't the money or the inclination to send their best players off to Uruguay for months on end. And by the time the deadline had come around in February 1930, not a single European team had entered. Japan had, as as had Siam, which is modern-day Thailand, but they later withdrew. And so the tournament again, could have very well been an all-American affair. But no, no, Rimei was not going to accept this. He was determined. He went about campaigning to get teams on board. And finally, he managed to persuade four European teams to take part, uh, France, Belgium, Romania, and Yugoslavia, which today, modern day, is 
Who boy, it is modern day Croatia, Serbia, Bosnia and Herzegovina, Kosovo, Slovenia, and North Macedonia. Um, he also got Egypt on board, uh, but only in a figurative sense. Uh, Egypt ended up very much not on board in a literal sense, as, as we'll come to directly. But uh, before we get to that, let's talk about some of the interesting things about some of these teams here. Uh, like the fact that Belgium had a bloke on the team whose name was Jean de B. And he was born in 1892. He was 38 years old when he was picked to play for Belgium, uh, although he actually never played a match. And I had to do my research on this. He is not the oldest player to have appeared on a uh, on a World Cup squad. No, that honour goes to the Egyptian goalkeeper Essam Al-Hadari, who was 45 years old when he played in a World Cup match against Saudi Arabia just just a couple of years ago, back in 2018. You can imagine what his knees must sound like. What it sounds like must sound like a bowl of rice bubbles every time he stands up. Anyway, um, a couple of other interesting bits and pieces about some of the other teams. Um, the US team, right? They send over a 16-man squad to Uruguay, and five of them were Scottish. Uh, they also had a Scottish coach, so don't know what was going on there. But another bloke on the team was English, but had played for the Canadian national team in the past as well. So an absolute hodgepodge there. But the wildest story about any of the national teams definitely comes to us from Romania. Uh, initially, right, the Romanians, they weren't even going to field a team. Like so many of the other European European nations, they're like, no, not interested. We're just going to sit this one out. But then the king found out. King Carol II loved his soccer. He's like, absolutely not. We are going. I'm sending a team over there. And he handpicked the squad. He went over the head of the Romanian coach, Costel Redulescu, and he said, nope, these are the blokes are going, are going over there. And then, right, remember I said all of these, all of these, you know, top-level soccer players back then, they're all amateurs. They've all got day jobs. The employers of the blokes that, that Carol picked for his team, they all came and complained. They went, listen, Your Majesty, we need these blokes on site. They're all, I mean, they've, you know, they've got jobs to do, mate. They've got, we, we need them working. And he said, well, bugger that. I'm the king. I mean, if, if you don't like it, I'm t- I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'll just shut down your companies. And that way, this, it'll solve the problem altogether because they won't have jobs anymore. If that's what you want, we can do that. And they said, no, no, we'll calm down. We'll find a different, we'll find a different solution. But the, the resolution they, they arrived at here, King Carol, he made these companies guarantee that these blokes would have their jobs waiting for them when they returned from Uruguay. And on top of that, he also made them pay these players while they're away. He forced the companies to give them paid leave, essentially. I mean, this bloke's the king. What are you going to do? You can't argue against him. He said he would personally shut down these businesses if they didn't if, if they didn't go along with what he said. And so this royally handpicked squad got ready, headed off to Uruguay by the order of the king himself. But how did they get there? And how did the other teams on this side of the Atlantic get there too? Well, Seeing as Uruguay was footing the bill, I mean, as I say, we're not in the age of aeroplane travel, not not on a grand scale yet at any point. So uh, the only way for them to get across unless they fancied quite a long swim was by boat. And again, Uruguay are paying for it. So Rime and FIFA organized space in a luxury ocean liner for the teams that were going to be making the trip across the uh, across the ocean. The SS Conteverde would be the vessel that was uh, that was going to take some of these teams over the on the on the two and a bit week voyage across to Uruguay. Uh, Romania was aboard the Conteverde, of course. Uh, France, Belgium as well. Yugoslavia and Egypt were initially slated to uh, to make the trip on a different ship. Yugoslavia got aboard this ship. They travelled over, no worries at all. But Egypt, I mentioned before. Egypt, uh, they had said they were on board 
with going to Uruguay, but they were very much not on board when it came to the actual ship itself. A storm delayed them in making it to their ship, and so they missed the boat in every sense of the phrase, and they had to withdraw, just like Japan and Siam had done. And so now we are down to just 13 teams, the nine from the Americas, and then these four traveling over from Europe on uh, on two different ships. Um, and in addition to the teams on the ship, on the, on the SS Conte Verde, um, there are also match officials and, I mean, other FIFA staff, but also Jules Rimet himself, and hilariously, Rimet actually had the trophy that was going to be given out to the winner of this tournament in his suitcase. This trophy, um, it did, it's not the one that they use today, which is inst- instantly called the Jules Rimet Trophy, named after him. Um, but this trophy apparently was worth tens of thousands of dollars. And I just, I'd love to imagine it wrapped up safely, you know, amongst pairs of undies, just like when you, you know, when you buy something nice overseas, you want it to survive the baggage handlers. He's just wrapped it up in his clothes and taken it over there on the ship. Anyway, thankfully, the journey was relatively uneventful. Uh, there was one team that spiced things up a little bit on the Conte Verde, again, the Romanians. Coach Radulescu of Romania perhaps feeling a measure of royal pressure from his squad-selecting majesty, King Carol II. He had his players train and drill as they sailed across the ocean. The Romanian team were running about shirtless, kicking soccer balls on the deck of the ship as Radulescu put them through their paces day in, day out. Obviously, one of them in in, in tip-top shape, one of them match fit, ready to go once they arrived. I don't know how much use the practice was. Soccer pitchers don't tend to heave up and down with the waves or have, I don't know, deck chairs strewn across them. But, I mean, then again, then again what do I know? Anyway... The Conte Verde, it landed in Rio, uh, Rio de Janeiro in Brazil on the 29th of June. It picked up the Brazilian national team as well uh, and then continued on to Uruguay. Just think of that for just a second, by the way. Imagine if like today the national teams all traveled together, like on, on a plane that stopped here, there and everywhere to pick up teams as, as they made it over to the to the World Cup. A ridiculous situation, but that is what happened. On the 4th of July, 1930, these four teams rock up on the Conte Verde. The Yugoslavians arrived after that and just disembarked all together and went to their hotels. Um, the first match would be on uh, would be held on the 13th. So that had some time to settle in, adjust to the wintry conditions of the Southern Hemisphere. But if you think that this week and a half before the matches started, if you think that it was free from ridiculous stories, mate, think again. Because first of all, right, the stadium's not ready. And it's not going to be as well in time for the opening matches. All the matches across the entire tournament, uh, they were going to be held in Montevideo in the the Uruguayan capital, uh, but they were all supposed to take place in a purpose-built stadium, Estadio Centenario, still around today. Uh, Back then, it had a capacity of 90,000 people. Uh, Today, it only fits around 60,000, probably due to stupid things like, I don't know, health and safety, Um, except it wasn't finished. Estadio Centenario, as is you know, FIFA's tradition, it it was built by immigrant workers at breakneck speed, but it just wasn't on schedule. It wasn't ready. And so the Uruguayans had to scramble to find stadiums that were going to be big enough to host World Cup matches. They found two others, and that's where the opening matches were played because the Estadio Centenario wasn't ready for five days into the tournament. Um, uh, it did ultimately host matches, including the semifinals and finals. But it, it is funny to think about the players ready to play their matches, rocking up to a half-finished stadium. Um, but uh, there was plenty of other nonsense that took place before the before the games began. Uh, in the days leading up to the tournament, the FIFA staff, the match officials and, and the referees and, you know, all the others involved in this sort of thing, they'd have this big meeting and agree on the rules of the game. Because while FIFA 
had and still has the official laws of the game all laid out, at this point there are still significant regional differences. And so all of these refs and officials and whoever else, they had to get together and argue about which rules were going to apply in this tournament. And even better, right, some of the referees were also, you're never going to guess this, some of the referees were also coaches of some of the teams. Remember the the uh, the Romanian coach, Radulescu? He's a referee. The, the Bolivian coach is a referee. He's going to cause some problems later. We'll, I mean, we'll, we'll get to that. But but just imagine that these days. Bloody, um, uh, I, I actually, I don't know any soccer coaches. Alec Ferguson. Um, who's that bloke from Socceroos in 2006? Gus Hiddink? Anyway, imagine one of them refereeing a, a a World Cup game. You know, running around in a suit. Wouldn't that wouldn't wouldn't that be ridiculous? Running around in a suit while refereeing. What's that? Refs wearing suits? Oh yes, no. Well, we, we will come to that. Don't you? Uh, don't you worry. Anyway, the the third and final bit of pre-tournament drama I want to tell you about. Uh, it involved the Uruguayan goalkeeper. Now, this bloke, his name uh, his name was Andres Mazzali, nicknamed El Buzo, or, uh, or the diver. Very appropriate for a soccer player, you'd think. Uh, but Mazzali, star goalkeeper. Two gold medals, 1924-1928, helped to seal Uruguayan victories at these, uh, at these Olympic Games. This bloke knew how to stop a ball from going into a net. Don't you worry about it. Now, the thing about goalkeepers in my limited understanding of soccer is that their job is to prevent people scoring. But Mazzali seems to have got this a little bit mixed up uh, before the tournament because what he did was this. He scored himself with a woman described as a mystery blonde in news reports. Uh, Very intriguing. Couldn't find anything else out about her. But anyway, yeah, no, he and this mystery blonde, they go off on a date. They go off, hit the town dancing, whatever else in the days leading up to the tournament. And rather than Mazzali go on to stop people from kicking goals, the only thing he stopped was himself playing in the tournament. Because the Uruguayan coach, Alberto Sapici, right, he had put a very strict curfew on his players, presumably to stop them going out, getting on the turps, you know, making sure they're in good nick for the upcoming games. But Mazzali, he goes off to shag this mystery blonde, he stays out past curfew, and Sapici responds by booting him off the team. Grounded like a horny teenager. Give me a phone. I'll take away your laptop. You're not going anywhere, young man. And what's more, he never played for Uruguay again, despite his stellar performances at the past Olympic Games, all thanks to this one date with the mystery blonde. But that's enough of that. I know that I know that all the fans of half-assed history around the world, you're saying, get to the good stuff, get to the soccer, talk about some bloody soccer, mate. Get across what happened in the Games. And let me tell you, we... We're not going to be doing that, man. We will talk about the actual sport that took place as little as possible. Yeah, don't you worry. Because these blokes going about kicking the ball, this was the least interesting part of the whole event. I mean, look, there, there are some details that, you know, the true soccer fan might might find interesting, such as, uh, I mean, a popular team formation back then, rather than the 4-3-3 or whatever it is these days, a popular team formation back then was 2-3-2-3. Um, if you're a fan of soccer, I hope you enjoyed that little fact. I don't fully understand how unusual or wacky it is. I did see some people laughing about it on Twitter, so I hope it's good enough. For, anyway, whatever. In any case, 3 p.m., 13th of July, 1930, the very first World Cup matches kick off the U.S. versus Belgium in front of 18,000 people and at the other stadium that managed to rustle up as well, 
France versus Mexico in front of around 4,000 people. So, yeah, not not much of an audience, it does have to be said, although apparently that wasn't the lowest attendance of all the matches. Chile versus France had half of that, around 2,000 people. And I, I read that, I, in, in one report I read that Romania versus Peru had as few as 300 people in the crowd. I mean, imagine that, a World Cup game with 300 people watching. I, I guess at least there wouldn't be surge pricing for the Uber home after that. Official attendance numbers are way higher than that, so I wasn't able to verify it, but that is that is a very funny thought, 300 people watching a World Cup game. Anyway, in these first matches, uh, the French, Lucien Laurent, he became the uh, he, he gained the honour of being the first person to ever score a World Cup goal. The first ever World Cup goal was scored uh, by Lucien Laurent as France went on to beat Mexico 4-1, while US goalkeeper Jimmy Douglas secured the first ever World Cup clean sheet as the US beat Belgium 3-0. Um, and we talk about these records like they're, you know, particularly notable and remarkable. And I, I, I guess they are in a way. I'm not trying to take anything away from either of these blokes. Good good job to both of them. But in fairness, someone had to either score the first goal or get the first clean sheet during these matches, didn't they? I mean, it, it was going to happen. Anyway, the group stage matches, they continued. Boring, boring, soccer, soccer, kicks and goals and rolling around pretending like you're dying to get a free kick. Yep, yep, yep. But let's talk about the good stuff. Let's talk about, for example, what the players wore during the matches. And and also, not just the players. Remember how I before I was making dumb jokes about referees running about in suits? That happened. That actually happened. News reports of the tournaments proudly reported on how very smart and dashing the referees looked in their jackets and knickerbockers. <laughs> I tell you what, they would have had a hard time dashing running about in a suit. What were they thinking? Just imagine that. Referees attempting to keep up with the players as they run up and down the field in a suit. They should bring it back, man. They should bring it back. Put put soccer referees in a top hat and tails and see how they go running 10 kilometers in 90 minutes in patent leather shoes. I would love to see that. Um, the referees also, they, they're not the only ones to adopt a more formal look for the games. Um, some of the players, some of the players can be spotted in photos of the event wearing berets, which is you know always a classic look. And most photos of the goalkeepers show them wearing flat caps. Um, obviously, the goalkeepers wore different coloured strips, just like they do these days, to differentiate them from the from the regular players. But also, back then, they all wore little flat caps as well, just you know, just to make sure no one mixed them up by looking just at their head. Um, but <laughs> speaking of mix-ups, holy moly, check this out, right? When Bolivia and Brazil took to the field for their group match against each other, things got very, very confusing. This mix-up was like nothing else. Uh they were both wearing the same uniform. This is before the Brazilians started wearing yellow or the Bolivians started wearing green. Both teams took to the field wearing white. I mean, what is this, a game of cricket? What took, what took place was one of the most confusing matches of soccer in World Cup history. Neither team could tell themselves apart from the other. They would have been bloody kicking the ball all over the place. The Brazilians did have, you know, blue shorts on compared to the Bolivians' black. But apart from that, it was the same kit. White shirt, black socks, couldn't tell them apart. But it gets better. It gets better. Because you might look at that and think, oh, mate, no worries at all. Just like a just like a game of pickup basketball. One team, get those shirts off, pop those nips out, and we're good to go. Shirts and skins. No, no. The, uh, the teams took a slightly different approach uh, to resolving uh, the, this clash here. Uh... Uh, I, I don't know when this happened. At some point, it might have been at halftime, or it, it might have been a before. It might have been a break in the game for them to actually do this. But at some point, right, the Bolivians left the field and returned wearing 
Uruguay strip instead. The Uruguayans had kindly intervened and they lent the Bolivians their blue shirts so as to differentiate them from the Brazilians. And so the Bolivians, right, they went on to lose 4-0 to Brazil while dressed as Uruguay. I don't know if this is something that has ever happened since, in not just in soccer, in any sport. I don't know that there's ever been another national team that has gone out and played and lost a match wearing a different national team's uniform. But that is something that happened at the 1930 World Cup. However, if you were thinking, exalted listener, that that was the only uniform-related story about Bolivia and Uruguay to emerge from this World Cup, think again. I told you there was some truly absurd stuff here, and I bloody well meant it. Because... Before their very first match, the very first match they played, before, before playing against Brazil, Bolivia played against Yugoslavia. And uh, before this match, the Bolivians prepared what was actually a very nice surprise, right, for the Uruguayans, who, don't forget, they are celebrating their 100th anniversary of, the, of their constitution. Uh, and, and, uh, and the Bolivians, you know, as, as regional neighbours, are wanting to congratulate the Uruguayans in earnest and, uh, and celebrate alongside the host nation for this momentous occasion in the nation's history. And so this... You know, we are obviously going to make fun of what happened, and it, it is pretty bloody funny, but obviously their heart was in the right place in attempting to do what they did here before they cocked it up monumentally, as you'll see. Anyway, what happened was this. As they ran out to the field, right, to play Yugoslavia, this is their first match, Bolivia against Yugoslavia the world, uh, at the World Cup 1930. The Bolivians, they ran out in their white shirts, but on the front of each of their white shirts, right, was a letter. They each had a one letter on, on the front of their white shirts. And uh, as they all gathered together for the traditional team photo, this is something that dates all the way back to the 1930 World Cup, even today, they, you know, the World Cup teams run of the field, they get the photo taken. As the blokes from, uh, from Bolivia came together for this team photo, right, when they stood next to each other, the letters spelt out, Viva Uruguay. And I thought, isn't that nice? Isn't that a lovely gesture? Gesture from Bolivia, congratulating the hosts on such a special occasion, really wanting to show that they were they were supporting Uruguay again, an important moment in their history. Except they didn't quite get the spelling right. They were missing one of their team members for the photo, and so they ended up spelling out Viva Uruguay instead. And actually, no, that's not even true because the players also stood in the wrong order, and so they spelt out. Uruguay Viva, you can go online and you can see this photo. It is very funny indeed, although you will also see the other photo that they must have taken afterwards when the third you guy turned up. They did end up getting a snap that said Viva Uruguay. But the famous photo to emerge from this gesture put on by, uh, by the Bolivians here was Uruguay Viva, which I think is, is just brilliant. Anyway. While we're on the subject of photography, uh, let's have a chat about some of the photos that were taken of the event. You can you can go online. You can see these photos. You can see how the players were playing in their berets, in their flat caps, although I unfortunately couldn't find any pictures of the refs in their suits. Um, but the reason that when you look at some of these photos that they're so clear and they're so well shot and they show the action so very well is because the photographers just seem to step onto the pitch to take their photos. And you might think, well, how, you know, maybe it's just, they angled themselves in a clever way or they, they found a way to, to... No, no, they stepped onto the pitch to take these photos. And the reason that you can tell that is because in the backgrounds of some of the photos, you can see photographers stepping over the boundary lines. In the, in the background of some of the photos taken by these photographers, you can see 
other photographers with their cameras raised on the pitch. I assume this doesn't happen these days. I assume there are rules about where you can and can't go as a photographer. But, I mean, you know, that's why they have those lenses that are like a metre long, I would guess. I'm not an expert on the topic, but I've never seen a photographer running along beside a player taking photos as they were dribbling the ball down towards the goal. Anyway, let's uh, let's turn back to the, the actual soccer itself for a second here. Talk about the group stages. They were played out. Um, one group uh, was of four teams and the other three were just of three uh, because of, you know, the fact that the tournament had 13 teams, uh, which meant that the, the, the teams in the group of four, Argentina, Chile, uh, France and Mexico, they, had, they all had to play an extra game compared to the other teams. Um, but only one team from each group went through, which whittled the field down immediately from 13 to just four, just four semifinalists. Um, and the teams that went through after the group stages were Uruguay, the hosts, the United States, Yugoslavia, and Argentina. And um, I want to have a chat with you about the Argentinian team. We will get to that in due course. Uh, but but before we get there, um, I want to tell you one last story about Bolivia here. I want to tell you about the about what happened when Bolivia went on to play Yugoslavia after the whole you know uh, debacle with the with the letters on the shirts. They they played the they played the match against Yugoslavia. They lost four nil uh, just as they did against Brazil. Um, but for much of the game against Yugoslavia, they were playing a man down. Now this is a relatively common occurrence in soccer. Uh, you you play a man down when someone gets a red card and is sent off. You 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 can't replace them if they get sent off with a red card. But that's not why Bolivia was lacking a player. In the eighth minute, right, the Bolivian Gumasindo Gomez was on the wrong end of a sharp tackle from Yugoslav defend, uh, defender Milutin Ivkovic, right, uh, which ended up breaking his leg. Ivkovic actually broke Gomez's leg. And what makes this even more ridiculous is that back in Yugoslavia, Ivkovic was a medical student and he's over here in Uruguay, bloody breaking people's legs, breaking the Hippocratic Oath, first do no harm. What's he, doing? What's, he, what's he trying to do, drum up business? Is he hoping Gomez is going to come to him later on and be like, oh, mate, I broke, oh, how did that happen? How'd you break your leg? Oh, that's, well, you know, I'll look after it for you. Anyway, the point is, the point is this. After Gomez's leg was broken, after he was stretched off, back then you weren't allowed substitutions for any reason. You sent 11 blokes onto the field. That was that. You didn't have any more for the entire game. And the reason I bring this up before we start talking about Argentina is that this will be a very big part of the Argentinian campaign and the matches that they played, as you'll see. Let's talk now about the team that generated by themselves the biggest number of absurd stories in the entire tournament. Argentina were were one of the favorites. They were they were right up there with the with the host nation Uruguay. They had been the silver medalists at the 1928 Olympic Games in soccer. Um but for all their skill on the pitch, it seems like they really weren't very well liked by the others uh, in this event, particularly by the other when it came to the other South American nations. For instance, the local Uruguayans, not the team, but just people living in Montevideo, right? These people found out where the Argentinians were staying, the hotel that they were sleeping in, uh, or I say sleeping, they didn't get much sleep because each night before the Argentinians had a big game the next day, 
the locals would crowd into the streets around the hotel and just make a huge amount of noise. They would let off fireworks and just make an absolute racket to make sure that none of the Argentinian players got a good night's sleep before their games. Uh, Nonetheless, despite not being very well rested, Argentina did very, very well in their matches. Um, They opened their tournament with a win against France, although how this match ended was it was Truly farcical. Um, Argentina versus France, 15th of July. Uh, France playing their second match before before some teams have even played their first, by the way. Um, it's nil all until the 81st minute. Then Argentina score. Huge. They go up, loving it. Fantastic. 81st minute, late goal, but that's fine. Still counts. And then three minutes later, the referee blows the whistle to end the game. In the 84th minute, Argentina win 1-0. to nil. The crowd goes mental for different reasons. Uh, they begin to stream on the pitch in either celebration or in protest, depending on who they were going for. And the French, dejected with their loss, absolutely heartbroken. They march off the field. They hit the showers. Terrible result for them. Except, as the soccer fans listening will know, the referee had blown the whistle in the 84th minute. And games of soccer go for 90 minutes, not for 84. And when the ref is alerted to his mistake by the other match officials, he races off to try to retrieve the teams, drag them back onto the field and have them continue to play. But as I say, some of the French players, they're already in the showers. They have to get dressed in a, in a great hurry, rush back out onto the pitch with wet hair and everything and finish this match. The crowd, meanwhile, is still on the field, nearly rioting the people who were going for France. And the police had to be brought in to clear the pitch for the game to continue. Mounted police were used to drive people back into the stands to watch the final six minutes because there is still more soccer to play. And then... After all that, France failed to score in the remaining six minutes, and it ends up being 1-0 all the same. So off the French go again, back to the showers. Must have felt to them like they'd lost twice. Um, as for the Argentinians, yep, they won hip hip hooray, fantastic. But as they left the stadium to go back to their hotel, they found a crowd of angry Uruguayan locals, many of whom chucked bricks at their bus as they boarded. So the Argentinians are not having a good time off the field, although on the field doing very, very well for themselves. The next match, the Argentinians played uh, against Mexico. uh, And this game was very interesting because the referee was none other than the bloke that I mentioned before, the Bolivian coach, Ulysses Saucedo. Now, I don't know exactly what was going on here. I was trying to find out exactly what Saucedo was trying to do. Uh, But it did seem that he took a very interesting approach to the impartiality that referees are supposed to show while uh, overseeing games. Argentina won 6-3, but Saucedo awarded Mexico a bunch of penalties that allowed them to score and made the game... Well, I was going to say, it it didn't make make the game a lot closer. I mean, Argentina still absolutely thrashed them. But, I mean, it was closer than it would have been otherwise because Saucedo was very liberal with giving penalties to the uh, to the to the Mexicans. I don't know. Maybe Saucedo was trying to maybe he's hoping to knock Argentina out of contention in the group stage so Bolivia would later have an easier opponent later on. I don't know, but I mean look it it didn't matter. I mean Bolivia went on to lose all their matches 4-0 and they finished bottom of their group, so it was completely irrelevant in the end. But then after Argentina after Argentina beat Mexico, they were on to play against Chile. And this match was absolutely wild. I have to say, I don't know all the ins and outs of South American soccer rivalries. I certainly don't know if Argentina and Chile get on these days, but back then, hoo boy, they certainly did not. During this match, an all-out 
brawl erupted between the Argentinians and the Chileans after a stiff tackle from Luis Monti, one of the uh, star Argentinian players. Uh, A foul was called on Monti, uh, but that was largely ignored as the players took matters into their own hands and beat the living daylights out of each other until the cops intervened. Once again, at an Argentina soccer match, the police were needed to restore order, but not to get a raucous crowd under control, this time to bring the players back under control. And it took 30 police officers in total to break all the players up and ultimately get the match back on track. Although with, you know, a few more black eyes than there had been before. Anyway, Argentinians won 3-1. to one. They finished at the top of their group and so advanced through to the semis. But let me tell you, things were about to get even wilder in their semi-final against the United States. If the, if the game against Chile had involved a brawl, The match against the US was like a full-on war zone. The two teams absolutely pummeled each other black and blue. It was so unbelievably bad. In the 19th minute, right, the American uh, Raphael Tracy, he had his leg broken. I don't know if Luis Monti had anything to do with this one, but Argentina have now broken two opposing legs in two games. Um, Tracy played on. Also, by the way, he, he played on with a broken leg. He played the rest of the half before finally giving in, leaving the US a man down because, again, no substitutions. He played half a game of soccer with half his legs working properly. What is going on with this bloke? But then, after this, right, the American goalkeeper had his shoulder busted up. He had to play on despite the injury. He can't play without a goalkeeper. But it doesn't stop there because the American player Andy Auld, right, he got a kick in the mouth from one of the Argentinians and had four of his teeth knocked out and his lips torn to ribbons, but played on all the same. Stuffed a rag in his mouth and off he went. Unbelievable. But all of this, all of these injuries, everything else, all of this, it pales in comparison to what is perhaps the funniest moment of the entire, not just the entire match, the entire tournament, the most ridiculous moment of the 1930 World Cup. Are you ready? In the second half, right, in the second half of this game, Argentina versus United States, one of the American players was knocked unconscious. I mean, it was such a violent game. Unbelievable. Anyway, for this unconscious player, a stretcher was prepared, so obviously he could be taken off. And obviously, one of the one of the US team physios ran out to help him, as you would check that he's okay. You know, that's the that's the physio's job. Except the physio tripped over and fell as he was running out to this injured player, and he fell and smashed the bottle of chloroform that he had in his pocket. The physio knocked himself out cold with the chloroform and the stretcher that had been prepared for the unconscious player also had to be used to ferry the physio off the field as well. In the end, by the end of this match, the US had just eight players left who weren't injured. Broken legs, busted shoulders, teeth being knocked out. Who knew soccer could end up being a blood sport? And on top of that, their physio chloroformed himself in the middle of the match. Anyway. You won't be surprised to learn, I mean, Argentina won, 6-1. to one. Not surprising, given that they battered the United States team halfway to hell. And with this win, Argentina advanced to the finals, as did the host nation, Uruguay, who beat Yugoslavia. Another 6-1 result. Both semifinals went 6-1. Um, and while the Uruguay-Yugoslavia match didn't have teeth being knocked out of people's heads or anything like that, it did have the very same referee who had blown his whistle early, 
uh, back in that match between uh, France and Argentina. But this time around, he blew his whistle at all the right times. That's fine. But he also disallowed Yugoslavian goals while allowing controversial Uruguayan ones. Never a dull moment in this tournament. I don't know what was going on with this referee. These days, we're lucky to get like one or two good bits of gear from World Cups in in the 21st century. This one was just a non-stop parade of nonsense. Anyway, we arrive at last at the final, held on Wednesday, sure, Wednesday, uh, the 30th of July, 1930, between the host nation, two-time Olympic champion, Uruguay, uh, and apparently the most violent and widely despised team in South America, Argentina. Estadio Centenario, of course, was open. Uh, It was packed with people to see the final. Uh, The gates opened at 8 in the morning, six hours before the game began. The place was completely full by noon. Over 90,000 fans crammed themselves into the stadium, eagerly awaiting what was uh, actually a rematch of the last Olympic final. Although, I have to say... Official attendance figures these days put the number much lower. Apparently, it didn't get as high as 90,000. Who knows? Anyway, um, But, of course, the drama started long before the match did. Uruguay and Argentina couldn't agree on which match ball to use. Back then, uh, there were a few different ways that soccer balls were stitched together. Both players had their preferred style of soccer ball and refused to budge on which one to play with. Um, if you want to see these balls, just jump online and, and, and type balls into... Um, Actually, don't don't do that. I'm, I'm sure you can be a bit more refined in your search, but but you will find them. You'll find pictures of uh, of Uruguay's preferred T-stitch ball um, and Argentina's uh, I don't know regular stitch one. I guess I don't know what they're called. Neither of them are, neither of them are the modern ones, hexagons and pentagons. I, I don't know what they are. I can I, I've got no idea. Anyway, the resolution to this issue was that the teams agreed that they would play with Argentina's ball for the first half. And then Uruguay's for the second. So that's some real like wisdom of Sol- Solomon right there. I'm I'm sure you'll agree. Fantastic result. Um, but one final detail. One final detail before the match begins. FIFA actually had trouble finding a referee for this match. And if you think about why, it makes perfect sense. There are tens of thousands of rabid soccer fans crammed into the stadium. And the referee was going to be the one out there making decisions that would cost one team or other the game. Not the sort of thing that you want to be doing around tens of thousands of people who were worked up and chanting victory or death in the stands, um, you know, ready for the match of their lives. But eventually, it was a brave Belgian, John Langenus, who stepped up, although uh, I, I, have, I have to tell you, um, I have to tell you about the condition that he put on him refereeing this match, and it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't a financial one. It, it wasn't demanding more money. No, no, no. He did have a certain condition that needed to be fulfilled before he agreed to referee the match. He insisted. This is not a joke. He insisted that a boat was kept prepared in the harbour, ready for him to make a quick getaway if things turned ugly. Imagine this: a soccer referee in a full suit asking for a getaway vehicle. Anyway, it is with, my friends, a pang of regret that I tell you that this final, this match, it was just really a game of soccer. 
nothing all that special, no mix-up with team kits, no premature whistles, no teeth being knocked out. There are stories about Luis Monti, the, the Argentinian star player. Uh, there, there are stories about him not playing to his full ability after he received death threats. Um, there are reports that he was worried that he would literally be killed if Argentina won, and so he tanked and, and Argentina lost as a result. I don't know how true these stories are, but I, I, I do know what is true. Monti never played for Argentina again after this. In the, in the next World Cup in 1934, he played for Italy instead. So how about that? But overall, really, the final was just a regular old game of soccer. Uruguay won 4-2. Jules Rimet, uh presented the trophy to the Uruguayans. Uruguay declared the next day a public holiday. And there were riots in the streets of Buenos Aires and rocks thrown through the Uruguayan consulate's windows. Just the sorts of things that you'd expect after a big game of soccer. Nothing too exciting. And that, as they say is all she wrote today, sports fans. The absurd tale of the 1930 FIFA World Cup has finally come to an end, with Uruguay being crowned the first ever champions. The teams all returned to their home nations to varying levels of excitement. I I do wonder what King Carol II made of Romania's 1-1 result. But Jules Ramey, he returned with proof that there really was something to this idea of an international soccer tournament and that he he had something to work on here with this World Cup idea. And since then, every four years, with the exception of 1942 and 1946 due, due, due to the Second World War, the FIFA World Cup has been held and has been watched by millions and billions of people all around the world. But none of them, not one of them, has come close to the first, the original, and the best when it comes to providing us with the most ridiculous stories that the world of soccer has ever seen. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. Perhaps the, what, fourth time that sign-off has actually been directly relevant to what we've been talking about here. What a pleasure it was to get across this story. I absolutely loved reading about this ridiculous event. So good to return to Half-Hast History's roots of getting across the most absurd events from history. And as I say, plenty of other stuff like this uh, buried in the archives. Um, the 1904 Summer Olympic Games uh, marathon from St. Louis, uh, the 1908 race uh, from New York to Paris, uh, even the ancient Olympic Games. Fantastic. All sorts of stuff in there to get across. History of football as well. So for anyone who's into sport, the history of sport, if this is the first episode you've listened to, plenty more with that. Well, I say plenty. Four others where that came from, you can go you can go and listen to and then get into boring stuff like Napoleon Julius Caesar. Anyway, I do hope you've enjoyed the show. Um, as ever, closing off with all the boring housekeeping stuff, we're going to get through them nice and quick so this episode isn't too long. Halfhousehistory.net, that's the website. Patreon if you want to support the show directly. Merch you can buy as well. All sorts of exclusive stuff available via Patreon, including exclusive Patreon merch. Thank you so much to all the people who are supporting me there. Get in touch. There's a contact form on the website and I read every single email I receive. You can rest assured of that. If you've sent me an email, I... Almost certainly have seen it. Even if I don't reply to them, I do apologize for that. It's just a question of numbers. But that's it. We're done. See you back here next week for more Half-Hour History. Looking forward to it. And until then, of course, leaving you with a question posed on Reddit, a soccer-related one. We talked about Yugoslavia. Very good result for them, of course. It wasn't until the 60s that they ended up in, a, in another uh, semi-final uh, of the World Cup. But we've got a question here posed by... Oh, boy. Did not read this one ahead of time. Oh, Oh, dear. Fecal encephalopathy, which is certainly a choice for an online moniker. Anyway, this individual asks, 
While watching the World Cup, I did some research and I discovered that Bosnia and Herzegovina both have the exact same performance record since their teams were founded. Why is that?